Welcome to another exciting episode of Talkin' Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And we are going to talk about something that I feel like I've wanted to talk about for a long time, ever since we started the podcast. I always felt like this was material ripe for discussion. And that's because Tim here is an expert on the universal horror films, the classics of the 30s and 40s. And, uh... So, yeah, I'm excited to dig into this stuff. I don't know if I'd use the word expert. I'm I would. A, I'm I a would. student of them, I guess. I'm a fan. <laughs> well, you're about I'm to a... school me and All right. a whole bunch of <laughs> listeners. So, uh, with your depth of knowledge. I know more than the guy who earlier today when I was watching Dracula said, Wait, who is that? Is that Boris Korloff? <laughs> so, okay, I know more than some. Yes. So, uh, yeah, we are going to be talking uh, for the next couple episodes about the classic Universal monster movies. Feels like this is a pretty good time to talk about this. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, we went to go see a brand new Universal monster movie in the theaters in 2017. Uh, the Mummy, starring Tom Cruise. And, uh. It's one of the greatest regrets of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a rather uh, sad experience, for the most part. It's a huge missed opportunity. Like, they could have done something really great, kickstart the whole new Dark Universe thing they want to do, and mm -hmm. they just made a big action movie, and they didn't even do it well, because big action movies can be done well. Yeah, like, you know, and Tom Cruise has made some of them, you know? Yeah. Uh there were good action set pieces and everything, uh, but we're not going to get too deep into that movie because this is not a review <laughs> of Mummy 2017. So when talking about the Universal horror films, a pretty good place to start is Todd Browning's 1931 Dracula starring Bela Lugosi. What is it about Dracula that marks the beginning of the, of the horror cycle? Universal. Well, it's it's often considered the first true horror film of the sound era. It's just a straightforward supernatural story. There's no twist at the end where it's a dream or somebody was just pretending to be a vampire. It's actually a real monster. So was that something that before Dracula there had been movies that were uh, that had this like twist like that at the end? Well, like I hesitate to say spoiler alert because it's a lost film anyway, so you're never going to see it, but uh, Todd Browning and Lon Chaney's collaboration on London After Midnight in 1927, uh, it turned out to be um, somebody pretending to be a vampire. Oh, okay. See, I didn't know that. And uh, there have been many films involving, like, mad scientists, and there were a few supernatural films, but this is, I mean, as far as, like, the sound era goes, which... Granted, was only a few years old at that point. Mm -hmm. Like, this was, uh... It's generally believed to be the first one, and I'm throwing that 
caveat in there because like every now and then something will pop up and right. be like, oh, this movie exists. How come nobody ever talked about this movie? <laughs> right. Um, and you think about the uh, the movies that Universal had made beforehand, like Phantom of the Opera and Hunchback of Notre Dame. Like those could be considered monster movies, but they're yeah. more about human disfigurement. Yeah, and like Hunchback of Notre Dame had like the literary pedigree of being based on a Victor Hugo novel, and also horror wasn't really used as a term in regards to film. Until, I mean, it became a popular term genre-wise in, like, 1932. So, like, Dracula was February 1931, Frankenstein was December of 1931, and then shortly after that, it's like, oh, there's this thing going on. Horror films. Because, I mean, right at, um, I think it was New Year's Eve, uh, 1931 into 1932, was when uh, Ruben Mamoulian's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde came out. Uh, Warner Brothers had put out Svengali, and then in 32, you had, like, just this influx of The Mummy, The Old Dark House, Murders in the Rue Morgue, um, RKO did The Most Dangerous Game, Paramount did Island of Lost Souls, uh, Warner Brothers did Dr. X, there was just, that's when it really took off, and um, the popularity of Todd Browning's Dracula was like the, the seed there. Mm. So, it's funny to modern audiences, when you watch this original Dracula, you know, it could almost be considered cliche at this point. I mean, Bela Lugosi's Dracula yeah. is so famous and so has been imitated and parodied and and everything that it's. Uh, I can see a lot of audiences today not really feeling the, uh, the the horror that audiences must have felt back in 1931. And there are things like the guy who earlier today asked me about Boris Korloff. Right. He also said like. Well, why don't they even know he's a vampire? He's wearing a cape. And it's like, well, yeah, but vampires are known to wear capes because of this character. Of like, this capes, movie, it yeah. used to be like, oh, it's an upper class thing. People are wearing, like, capes and top hats and carrying walking sticks. and Right, and wearing bow ties and, yeah. yeah. If the character of Dracula hadn't been, like, Count Dracula and mm -hmm. had just been, like, Innkeeper Dracula or some random, like, guy, like, I wonder like what the symbols would be it's kind of like if hitler hadn't had that mustache like it's, it's, it's right just, it's yeah a, it would be like a whole different iconography and everything yeah totally and yeah that's interesting because um bella lugosi wasn't the first choice for dracula it was originally going to be lon cheney who he had worked with tom browning before as you said on london after midnight but he became ill and died before production started some people do believe that. Um, oh, so this is contested. Yes. Ah. Lugosi scholar Gary Don Rhodes actually did a series of articles for Film Facts magazine where he talks about like uh, big like myths of classic horror films and um, he like compares and contrasts various sources and his conclusion with the one about Lon Chaney being cast as Dracula is he was kind of split on it because before they started really planning to do the film of Dracula. Uh, Cheney had already been sick. And um, also he had had a dispute with Universal the year before because they released uh, a sound version of The Phantom of the Opera, which was just the 1925 silent version, but with dialogue uh, recorded onto it. And, really? And a score. Huh. And they didn't use... 
his voice, but in the advertising, um, there were implications that Something it was Lon Chaney. Something to the effect of, like, Lon Chaney speaks for the first time yeah. or whatever, yeah. And this is around the same time that he was actually speaking for the first time in, in a remake of The Unholy Three, which the original one had also been directed by Todd Browning, but the sound version was Jack Conway. Uh, but yeah, he was, and he was under contract to MGM, and it's unlikely mm. that because that of his been, relationship to Universal, they would have lent him out. And I mean, and stars were loaned out all the time, mm-hmm. but I mean, Lon Chaney at that point he was huge. Mm. But yeah, I think about it because it's like. Because when you do look at, like, the, the monster movies, or the horror movies, I guess, before Dracula, even, like, the previous uh, adaptation of Dracula, yeah. uh, Nosferatu, that is a very heavy makeup. You know, he's a monster. He's yeah. ghoulish on the outside. So I think, like, one of the thing, one of, one of the defining features of Dracula was that it was a monster that could walk among men. Like, there's that scene in the movie when, after he kills the, uh, the, the flower girl... Mm. When he's just walk, he's strolling down the street, right along on this on this crowded sidewalk, you know, walking to the uh, to the opera house, and it's like nobody knows that like there's this monster in their midst. I feel like that moment alone puts paid to the 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 idea that the film doesn't really have great use of sound, and it's like oh well, it's you know it's an early talkie, they don't really know how to use sound yet, and I feel like that's great as he's just walking, uh, like Dracula's walking silently along the street. And you hear these background, like, screams, a police whistle. Yes, yeah. And you realize, that, like, oh, they're responding to something he did. And looking at him, he's like, oh, hey, he's he's a count. Yeah. They're probably looking for some, like, poor guy who just murdered somebody. Or exactly. Something. They're looking for, you know, Lon Chaney. Yeah. You know, in one of his makeup. And uh, that was actually the, the genesis of the movie London After Midnight. I don't know why I stressed after <laughs> Uh, the genesis of London, uh, London before midnight, yes. which that would be an interesting movie to make, wouldn't it? Like London before midnight, and like maybe it would be like I don't know about the making of London after midnight. Ooh, there you go. Yeah, let's yeah, that's, do a, that. that's a freebie. You know, whoever's listening, all right, you run with it. <laughs> um, but yeah, the genesis of London after midnight was uh, Todd Browning and Lon Chaney had discussed doing Dracula, not with Universal or anything. And they looked into the rights. They were concerned because of the issues that Nosferatu had had, where uh, mm-hmm. Florence Stoker, Bram Stoker's widow, had tried to get all the prints destroyed because they hadn't gotten the actual legal copyright to make that movie. Uh, and they just decided it wasn't worth the hassle, and they were like, let's just do our own Dracula. And let's just, uh, you know, we won't follow that story. We'll just have, like, a creepy vampire guy, and we'll do it. So it's popular belief that the makeup that Lon Chaney wears in London After Midnight is how he would have done Dracula, he which have, uh, yeah, yeah. would go against everything that you just said as far as people's perception of the character because you would notice that guy walking down the <laughs> right, street. Right, he looks like a shark yeah. walking down the street. <laughs> so he would not blend in well. <laughs> he would not... Um, I mean, the the play that the film is mostly based on, the, the Hamilton Dean play um, from the 20s, you know, parts of it... I mean... Some people criticize the film for being stagey, and it's sort of like, uh, it's got like a drawing room mystery uh, feel to it at times, and if it wasn't just like a regular looking guy, I mean as regular as this character can be, he's not a regular looking guy, but you know, like he looks human, Yeah. Uh, nobody's going to be inviting him into their drawing room, so you know, they'd have to, that wouldn't really work in this context. Yeah, so with this film, Dracula, it introduced this new kind of monster, 
Um, and it wasn't Lon Chaney, it was Bela Lugosi, who had already played Dracula on the stage. This pretty much cemented his legacy as a, a horror icon. If not, I mean, a, if not a star, I was going to say, but I mean, he was always a star. Throughout his career, highs and lows, he remained a star, just not necessarily a successful, profitable star. At least he was billed as such. Yeah. Even in, even in films was. that he appeared quite briefly. Yeah. Or in a very, you know, non-speaking uh, role that, you know, you might not even realize he's there, but yeah. on the poster it'll say, you know, Bela Lugosi! <laughs> um, and this was something that he would sort of have a kind of a love-hate relationship with Dracula in his life. Yeah. Where it's, it's clear that, like, he loved that he was so identified with Dracula. He liked the, the, the being Dracula, it seems, but that he struggled to get all, you know, different kinds of roles and uh, was pretty pigeonholed into, you know, doing a lot of the same characters over and over again. Which is Which was odd for him because, I mean, he was, like, 48 years old when he did this movie and he'd been working in theater uh like all his life he'd been in films for like 10 years at that point and he had a very successful and varied career on the hungarian stage he had to leave the country because of his leftist political connections and then all of a sudden like after all those years of playing all these different roles just be like okay this is the kind of role i'm gonna be i'm right. the, i'm the heavy i'm the either the monster or often later on the red herring who's just there to look sinister but he's really just okay right yeah and it's kind of funny that his sort of counterpart going forward into the, at the birth of this whole horror explosion at universal uh, his counterpart boris karloff was also kind of an older actor at that point yeah i think he was like about 43 i, I believe when... yeah when he was cast as uh, frankenstein's monster yeah um, and then he, just like Bela Lugosi, was forever in that in those kinds of roles. But he had a little bit more freedom just because Lugosi as Dracula, looking at him, he's Lugosi. Karloff as the monster, right. looking at him, he's under all this Jack Pierce makeup. And, um, you know, in The Mummy, he's under all this makeup. And he wasn't... Like, if you saw him just walking down the street, at the beginning of his, like years of stardom you wouldn't necessarily know right away like oh there's boris karloff right. but lugosi is dracula lugosi can't go to any movie premiere dressed in a tux or any sort of fancy yeah. clothes <laughs> without being like oh my god it's dracula you know you dress boris karloff up in a tux and it's you know he's you know just any other actor so dracula dracula <laughs> It is one thing I don't understand about the the Dracula impression. Some of the Dracula impressions I've heard, which it's one of those like everybody who even people who's who's never seen Dracula or even any Lugosi film, they'll still do that impression. Um, but there's some like uh, Lenny Bruce had a Dracula impression, and I was listening recently to some Beach Boys sessions, and Bruce Johnson does a Dracula impression at one point. And for some reason, they do this thing that's like. Bleh! Blah. Blah. Like what is? Where is <laughs> yeah. that from? Blah. What is the blah? Like I don't know. It's yeah. I, like it, and well, that's one of the interesting things about watching Dracula is that like there are so many things that you think are in the movie that are not in the movie. Things like fangs 
Yeah. Or bite marks on the neck. Or a transformation into a bat. These are all things that are suggested but not, are not actually seen. Um, but, like, you know, when you put on Dracula, that, the, those are the things that you yeah. kind of are expecting to see. I think there is a moment when you faintly, in a long shot, you can see marks on a neck. Well, I do know that uh, in in Spanish Dracula, the Spanish yes. version, you do actually see the bite marks. Yeah, they're right up close, I believe, in the Spanish. Well, we'll get to the Spanish version yeah. a little later. One of the other criticisms is, I mean, like you said, like you don't see him transform into a bat or a wolf or anything like that, but it'll be described. At, like there's a scene where uh, right. <laughs> Jonathan Harker, played by David fucking Manners, um... <laughs> Like you, he, you got a beef with David Manners? Yeah, we'll probably get into that more uh, on our next episode. Um, yeah, he just, he just. I mean, often it's just the characters he's asked to play are just like these simpering, just know nothing characters that are. Yeah, yeah, he's like the romantic lead, and he's just there to look pretty and be annoying. But uh, anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> I got my own issues with that guy. Um, but like. You know, he'll run out on the balcony and he'll say, what's that running across the lawn? It looks like a great wolf. Or so, and, yeah. um, and, it, and you're thinking like, boy, it sure would be nice to see that yeah. instead of being told about it. Or like when Dracula appears to Renfield in his cell and he describes Yeah, and he describes the, the millions and, of rats yeah. and all that. But, I mean, and I definitely understand and uh, like I kind of side with that argument like oh these are things that we could have seen mm-hmm. the the thing about the uh with renfield what he sees though i i just then we wouldn't get to hear him talk about it and i really yeah i think Ren, the renfield uh scene is a bit different because we know that dracula is uh you know an actual monster but at the time at the at that point in the movie it's like is renfield just crazy you know yeah. is he, you know the, the characters don't know for sure what to believe and so I think, like, leaving some of that mystery up to the audience is uh, is good. And, yeah, but the, the scenes that I think that we should have seen more than any are, are the scenes involving Lucy. Yeah, that just kind of... Because, like, Lucy... We see Dracula come into her room. We see, her, we see him go for, for, the, for, the, for the neck bite. And then it just fades in on the next scene, and she's lying dead on a on a medical examiner's table and it takes you a moment to even realize like oh that's that's lucy who was in that previous scene like she's dead i guess and then later you know mina describes how you know she sees her you know she sees her walking across the, out of the graves or we don't even really know where she is or what she's doing but there's news headlines about this woman in white uh and you know there is that one very atmospheric shot of um, Francis Dade walking through the mist, because like right before right. the yes, like you see that like a a guy on a bike goes like he hears a child screaming and he looks and you see just like Lucy's just walking around, mm-hmm. um, and then it cuts to Martin reading the paper, yeah, um, and talking about it. I think like it it would definitely be nice to see at least. The scene that Mina, that Mina describes of her witnessing Lucy. Yeah. But this is a... Uh, it's an interesting question because 
just sort of like d- d- dissecting the merits of the movie from the prism of like I guess of a modern a- audience because there's no question Dracula is is a film classic and it you know has been praised a lot over the years but one of the reasons why you wanted to talk about this movie specifically was because you felt like it needed to be uh, it it could use a little defense yeah it's a film that people really like to knock and um, it's an easy target I think because I mean it is an early sound film Mm -hmm. and there are things about it that might just seem creaky to a modern audience but I don't know I think I mean I'm maybe more used to watching films from that era but I think even if you compare it to Frankenstein which came out later that same year yeah there is a difference in yeah. production quality any in preparation for this episode I rewatched All Quiet on the Western Front uh, which was a huge hit for Universal in 1930 and um, what's great about that is a lot of the sets that were built for that you then get to see in all of these monster movies for the next ten oh, years. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> like the, the European village that's just used as like the main street <laughs> right, for everything. Right, yeah. Um, and that film, the camera's moving all the time. There's just these great montage sequences, great uses of sound, and like that's a year earlier. So for that, for those to come out of the same studio, and Dracula was seen initially as like a super production. Um, right following on the successes of uh, Broadway and All Quiet on the Western Front, um, you know, they were going to start doing more of these prestige films. The studio ran into some financial troubles before Dracula went into production, so it was scaled back a little bit. But I feel like it was like, the way that the film is, it's it's stillness, the Mm -hmm. silence, Mm -hmm. the somewhat lethargic pace, I feel like was a conscious effort on the filmmaker's part because like they if they wanted it to speed up they have shown like hey this studio can make fast movies it definitely creates a mood yeah it's a very specific mood to that movie that i don't think is replicated in any of the subsequent universal films that i've seen there's something specific about that silence Mm. and that stillness that, that you described that I don't know. It just makes you feel like you can smell the the mustiness of of Dracula's castle, or like you can you can smell like the candle wax or something. And it's interesting. I mean, like the silence. Because I, I, I was I read that um that a lot of people sort of thought that Todd Browning was uncomfortable with sound, and that may be one of the reasons why it's there is no musical accompaniment accompaniment outside of Swan Lake at the very beginning and a little bit in the uh in the theater there's a there's a orchestra playing um but there's like the same amount of music in Frankenstein which was James Whale cuz they just have a little bit at right, the, with yeah. the opening credits and then they have um I'm not 100% on this. I think the only other music in it is, like, when they're having, uh... They're preparing for the wedding and they have, like, the big party in the village. There's, like, some diegetic, like, folk dance music going on. Yeah, there's no score to it, is there? 
but there's some great sound effects in it. And there's like right. a great like soundscape that they still do. Yeah, and there's really not much of any of that going on in Dracula. Yeah. So well, do you there's, think there's creaking doors, coffin lids, and uh, <laughs> scuttling animals? Yes. So do you think it was a apprehension on the part of Todd Browning to sort of dip his toe into the possibilities of sound, or do you think it was more of a of a, of a choice? Um. I mean, I'm not like whatever I say is it's my opinion, you right? Know? Like I, <laughs> I see. I was like, hang on a second. Hey, Todd. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, there there was like this sort of backlash in the early '30s. To, all right, so like when sound hit in the late '20s, there were these films like uh, Lights of New York, which was like all talking, and that's basically what it was: is people talking a lot. And there were a ton of musicals that were coming out. And everything was sound, 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 sound. And it's weird to think of this now, but it's like there were some people who were like, okay, okay, okay. Enough just, with the sound. Yeah. Turn it down. <laughs> it's like, let's just have some silence every now and then. So kind of like uh, 3D movies today. Yeah. In preparation for this episode, I watched the film with Philip Glass's score that he composed in... Uh, 1999, I think. And it was interesting to watch it like that. And I like Philip Glass as a composer, and I think the music that he wrote is good. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Yeah. But I don't like the way that it marries to the movie at all. It actually felt more like a silent film to me mm. with the music than without it. Did it seem rushed? Not the music, but I mean like did it make the, it, pace, the pace of the, of the film movie kinda, seemed like Yeah, I mean the whole well, That's be, his normal style, I guess that he does. Yeah, it's a very kind like, of like uh, you know, uh but I, I love sometimes that uh the album um was it Quartet that he does with Kronos Quartet, um, who also was, they performed the music uh, for that score. Uh, like, I love that album, and it's it's a similar style, but it's, yeah, I don't think it really works with the movie. No. And I think part of the problem is that it's it's kind of, it, it's like wall-to-wall score. Like, there aren't, there isn't a lot of mm. uh, downtime, and it doesn't really, like, uh, mirror what's happening on screen in the way that scores usually do so it, it made it feel like more like it was a it was a score for a silent movie which usually is just like non-stop music right. and it kind of just flows right from one scene to the next and doesn't really like change all that much um so i found watching it i was like this feels more dated <laughs> you know in a way than just the the musicless version and honestly i haven't watched the whole film with that score since i first got the uh the universal's uh, legacy collection dvd because uh, it was a special feature on there but earlier today i was just like oh i should probably at least refresh my memory of what it sounded like and uh i just kind of skipped through it and i would watch like a minute or two of the beginning of each uh chapter and um i mean that's not the right way to do it i guess but still i kind of i hold with my belief or my opinion of that score yeah it's uh, it just doesn't really mesh well. There was an episode um, of Svengulli where they did Dracula. Uh, I guess they've done it a few times, and it was really confusing. I was just like, uh, one day I got home. It was Saturday night, between ten and midnight. So I was like, oh, let's see what's on Svengulli tonight. 
which for any listeners who don't know what Spengoolie is, uh, it's a, he's a horror host on MeTV. He's kind of uh, like an like an Elvira type of yeah, or like Zachary or Goulardi or Son of Ghoul or all those guys. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a silly man, but it's an entertaining show. I don't know, I like him. Didn't Spengoolie pass away a few years ago? Well, this is the person who is now Spengoolie. Started, oh, it's, a, it's a title to be. He started out down. as son of Svengoli. He's been just plain Svengoli for um, a while, um, I believe. Okay. Unless this is very recent, I haven't watched him in a few weeks. <laughs> no, that, this I feel was like somebody a, this was at said. least like a year or two ago. Oh, okay. But yeah, so they were showing Dracula, and I watched just a couple minutes of it, and I was like, "Wait a minute, what? What's going on?" And it was they had a score. And there was music playing, but I knew it wasn't the Philip Glass score. It just sounded like a regular, like, classic film score. So I messaged my friends Garrett and Colin, who watch Spengoolie almost every week. And I was like, what is going on with Dracula? Why am I hearing music? And uh, my friend Garrett got back to me, and he said he looked into it, and apparently when Dracula was released, I believe it was in France for a re-release they added a score to it hmm. and i don't know if that score has been in any like home video format that the film has been released yeah. uh, in, in america but i guess um on Spengoolie's website or facebook page or something like there was a statement about like oh we showed it with the score once and it got some very positive feedback and then when we showed it without the score like in its original format people were like hey where's the music so now, when they show Dracula on Spengoolie, they just have that weird score that huh. I've never like listened to the whole thing of because I just watched a few minutes of it that night. But it's, yeah, it's it's, it's it's weird to me that even on like the the most modern uh, home releases of Dracula, it still includes the Philip Glass score. Yeah, like that's something that they've been sort of like carrying forward. But I don't think the more recent ones include things like uh, Stephen Summers, director of Van Helsing. You know, I actually about... I, I wrote up a couple of notes, and that was one of them <laughs> um, because I I have I yeah I have the uh, the Legacy Collection DVDs, which came out in two thousand four, two thousand five, something like that, right? Around then, I'm not sure. And uh, so I'm looking at the special features, and I'm like, oh, what do we got on here? And the first thing on the list is Stephen Summers on Dracula, and I'm like. Stephen Summers was the director of the Brendan Fraser Mummy films. And that's what I, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, he made the Mummy films. And I started up, and then immediately it's showing clips from uh, Hugh Jackman in Van Helsing. And I'm like, oh, right, he did Van Helsing. Which I never saw. It never looked like something I would enjoy. Yeah, I, I saw it back when it came out, and uh, I remember just not liking it at all. I mean, I don't really remember much of the movie. But it was kind of funny because you that special feature is like it starts and it's you know Stephen Summers and he's like oh you know Dracula it's a great movie you know Bela Lugosi incredible and then it just like transitions into you know in Van Helsing you know our Dracula is like this and that and the other thing and it's so it's, it's a special feature about the behind the scenes yeah. of Van Helsing and it's weird for um, a collection called the Legacy Collection that they've included basically advertisements yeah. for like a film that was just like about to come out and uh, I, I mean on one hand i guess it was universal saying like we're pretty confident that this is going to be part of our legacy with the like, the monsters it seems but like they have just... a lot of uh confidence in their attempts to reboot the uh the monster films yeah. with 
you know, Dracula Untold was supposed to be their start to their new uh, shared universe and reboot, and then that didn't work, so then they tried again with The Mummy, and, uh, you know. I think part <laughs> of the issue is that, I mean, we keep saying they and them in reference to Universal, but, I mean, it's a corporation, you know, it's every few years there's somebody else in charge, and during the the classic Universal Monsters era, there were very specific people in charge. Um, specifically in, like, sort of the first wave from 1931 to 1936, uh, Carl Lemley Jr. was the head of production at Universal. He was given the job as a 21st birthday present. Thanks, Dad. Yeah. That's... <laughs> Here you go, son. Here's the keys to the kingdom. Basically, yeah. And, um... He, his father, Carl Lemley, sometimes known as Uncle Carl because he loved hiring relatives. Like, Carl Lemley wasn't a big fan of the more uh, macabre aspects of cinema. Carl Lemley Jr., however, uh, he was a big supporter of the burgeoning horror genre, and we have him to thank for putting some of these early films together. Unfortunately, the Lemleys lost power of Universal in 1936, but... Um, the monsters came back in different forms a few years after that. And you can see these distinct eras of Universal Monsters. Mm -hmm. And now the the Universal Monsters of today are whoever the hell's in charge now. I don't even know. <laughs> right. And actually, um, that era uh, is, is bookended by Dracula and then its sequel, Dracula's Daughter. So it's sort of... That wasn't by choice, because they didn't know that they were about to lose control of the studio, but it is nice that uh, we've got these little Dracula bookends there for the first wave of Universal Horror. So the, the, the success of Dracula was followed up almost immediately by Frankenstein. Was that a movie that was in production before Dracula came out, or was that specifically done after the success of Dracula? Uh, after... Dracula, a big part of it was, uh, wow, we got this new star, Lugosi, we gotta get something going for him. Right. And that didn't work out for him. Yeah, because yeah. there's the whole <laughs> story about him maybe being uh, turned down for the, or him him turning down the role of Which, Frankenstein's That's monster. how Lugosi would always tell people it happened. But there are other accounts that dispute this somewhat. Yeah, um... Robert Flory, who was supposed to be the director of the Lugosi Frankenstein, um, in several interviews over decades, he himself would tell different versions of it, which makes the truth very hard to pin down. Mm -hmm. uh, he had wanted Lugosi for Dr. Frankenstein. Um, the studio wanted him for the monster. Because mm -hmm. they were sort and, of already, they were sort of billing him as like the new Lon Chaney. Yeah. And uh, I think Lugosi as Dr. Frankenstein, that would have been very interesting. That would have worked really well. Yeah. The studio wanted Leslie Howard for Dr. Frankenstein and Lugosi as the monster. And then when James Whale came in, uh, after the success of his film Journey's End, and then he did, uh, or Universal wanted him to do the film Waterloo Bridge. And he was like, okay, I'll, I'll do this, but, you know, like... I'm hesitant about it. And they're like, okay, well, you, we've got all these films ready to go. You can have your pick of what you want to do next. And he was like, oh, okay. And he took over Frankenstein because mm. that was the one that seemed the most interesting to him. And then because of that, he wanted to work with Colin Clive as Dr. Frankenstein because he'd already worked with him on Journey's End. And then um, as legend goes, 
he spotted Boris Karloff uh, in the Universal Commissary one day, and he just really liked his look. It was love at first sight. Yeah. So Frankenstein comes out at the end of 1931, and that, again, is a huge success. Yep. So then what were some of the, uh, the bigger or more notable films in the first cycle? Uh, well, the next one after Frankenstein was um, sort of the... It's, it's seen as sort of like a consolation prize for Robert Flory and Bela Lugosi. They did Murders in the Rue Morgue, which was already set up to be the next movie they did after Frankenstein. But mm-hmm. once they got kind of kicked out of Frankenstein, they just went and did that at the same time, basically. Uh, and also in 1932, you had uh, The Old Dark House and The Mummy. Um, and then, Both of those starring Boris Karloff. Yep, pretty much cementing his stardom while Lugosi spent that year taking roles that were really small for somebody of his stature at the time uh, he had some financial troubles and he just he just had to take whatever was offered to him so he did um, a very small role as the sayer of the law in Island of Lost Souls for Paramount uh, he was in a serial uh, The Whispering Shadow he was in an independent film The Death Kiss um, where he just played a Kind of a small uh, red herring role. Uh, Edward Van Sloan and David Manners from Dracula were both in that with him. Uh, it's not. It's more of a crime picture than a horror film. Mm. But because of those names involved, it's right. You know, it's uh, yeah. It'll be lumped into like you know. Yeah. Well, <laughs> go see horror classics. You know? I remember they they used to play it on TV eight, the our local uh, channel a lot. And there's there's a lot of films that kind of get lumped in with the horror films that aren't necessary like in hindsight actually looking at them you're like i don't know this is just kind of like a regular mystery this is just right. a, a crime film with some horrific elements but the ones that people are generally agreed on would be like james wales the invisible man uh which is like a sci-fi horror film in mm-hmm. a way but then again so is frankenstein because it's a mad scientist yeah yeah i it's hard for me to look at the invisible man as being like a horror movie really there are definitely elements, but it's like, it feels more like a science fiction film. And that, that is one of the issues with genre. You know, yeah, you don't want to yeah. like, there are certain films that it is hard to tie them down because, especially ones that were directed by James Whale, because he also always uses humor so well. Right. And something like The Old Dark House, uh, people are like, oh, well, it's really just more of a comedy, but there are some very chilling moments in it. Like in uh, Invisible Man there's that woman that at the who's the actress uh uno o'connor yeah and she is uh screeching yeah the entire movie <laughs> and she has moments that are genuinely amusing but it you know it can grate on you a little bit yeah <laughs> i like her i don't know i like when she pops up in random movies i'm like oh cool i hope she screams but <laughs> right. she never really screamed for anybody else the way that she screamed for james whale um yeah so then the the ones that though that there's not really much argument about they are horror movies would be like um in 934 you have the black cat which is the first teaming of karloff and lugosi um which we'll discuss more in depth uh next week or on next episode next episode um and then of course bride of frankenstein werewolf of london and the raven are all 1935 and then it wraps up in 36, that first wave, with the Invisible Ray and Dracula's Daughter. Hmm. 
that's a nice little collection of movies. Yeah. Not a whole lot of uh, uh, lesser films in there. Yeah. They're all. Like I've never great. really been able to get into the Invisible Ray, a lot. But I, I've actually never seen that one. I think it's one of those things where all the other movies have all this like. Um, these legends around them and these reputations and nobody ever really talks about the invisible ray yeah like uh every now and then i'll want to watch the invisible ray again because i feel like it's just something i'm bringing to it like oh i didn't grow up with you so i don't have an attachment to you you know like the, <laughs> right. the other movies i just watched a lot like you're not one of my friends <laughs> yeah um i really need to judge on its own merits more and not just the fact that like it's a new friend you mm-hmm. know another interesting thing about dracula is that there are actually two different versions of the film there's the english language version starring bella lugosi that most everybody is familiar with but there was also concurrently produced at the same time a spanish version with a completely different cast but with the same script and using the same sets and it's really interesting to watch both versions because they're shot completely differently they have a different kind of sensibility about them and the spanish version of dracula is often used as uh sort of like critical ammunition against todd browning's dracula yeah because you can say what you want to say about todd browning's dracula that like oh you know it's uh silent the camera doesn't move very much you know but and it once you have this example of the same movie where the camera's doing all of these different sorts of things, it's easy to point to it and be like, look, like they did, they, they were doing all these things. Why wasn't uh, Todd Browning doing these things? But then once you actually start watching the two of them back to back and right next to each other, you find out, oh, well, Todd Browning's version was kind of doing these things. It's just, I've been used to watching it over and over for so many years that watching the Spanish version, it seems like all fresh and new. Mm-hmm. And like, I sort of had that same belief about the Spanish version sort of being superior until October 28th, 2015. A day that will live in infamy? (laughs) Yes. uh, Not only was it the first day I ever ate lobster, which is overrated, um, but I also (laughs) saw uh, Dracula and the Spanish version of Dracula back-to-back in a great 4K restoration on on the big screen at Crossgates Mall in Albany. And I actually found myself leaning more towards the Browning version. And I don't know if it was just the crispness of the print or what. Mm-hmm. Like it was just... I don't know if print is the proper word when talking about digital restorations. It's called but, like a digital yeah. print, is okay, what they yeah. say. Um, but, like, I don't know. something. The Spanish version... And I found this, again, when I rewatched it earlier today. Um, a lot of the lighting seems a little flat, like kind of t- I, yeah. like fifties TV lighting. I agree, it's a little too bright and evenly lit. And it's, um, I mean, I'm fine with the camera keeping its distance, but at times the framing sort of kind of reveals, like, oh, this is back in that time when everybody in movies uh, lived in rooms that had twenty foot ceilings, <laughs> right? Yeah, and it's it's just kind of oddly. Yeah, if you, were, if you were to base what reality was for the average person in the 30s just off of, like, movies, <laughs> it seems like everybody was, like, just disgustingly rich enough to have <laughs> servants and gigantic houses, and everyone has studies, and, 
It's just, uh, yeah, it's crazy. Oh, even people who lived in a hovel, like if it was, even if it was like a small room that was like 20 foot by 20 foot, <laughs> yeah. the ceiling would still be 50 feet up. Like, <laughs> and wasn't it uh, Citizen Kane, the first movie that actually like showed the ceiling in, in like a, on a set? Stagecoach, a couple years earlier, shows the ceiling, um, but I don't want to say that's the first, because like, like I was saying earlier about Dracula. Right, there's like, always something that comes up where you're like, oh, yeah, they actually did like you know, people talk about Stagecoach, because, like, oh, John Ford, John Wayne, all this stuff, but, like, for all I know, there was some movie that was directed by nobody, like, somebody I never heard of, right. and starred in it. was like, you know what? Here, point, point the camera up there. See that? That's the ceiling. And then he was promptly fired. <laughs> <laughs> we don't show ceilings. This is Hollywood. And, I, Lugosi's performance just isn't there. That's, that's what really is the, the, the definite thing. I think it, I think for as much as comparing the two movies is a great exercise for uh, blocking, which is uh, blocking is the term that's used to describe like how the action plays out in a scene, where you're putting the camera, where the actors are standing, moving to, all of, all of that. How where exactly you place them on the set. Um, it is an interesting way because you know giving. The same script to two different teams and saying like you know interpret this on your own so i think there's a lot to be sort of critical about the todd browning version yeah but i think what it what it kind of highlights is like how much a lot of those things don't really amount to a great movie if your actors aren't really uh i don't know bringing something unique and special to it yeah and there are good performances Lu lupita tovar <clears throat> as uh i forget what her name is in the spanish version but uh, eva eva that's right uh the the mina counterpart um she'll often be brought up as like oh well you know eva in the spanish version is so much more you know fiery and uh that might be a racial thing they're bringing to it i don't know um tempestuous <laughs> spicy <thing. laughs> um <laughs> than Helen Chandler's portrayal of Mina in uh, the English language version. But in watching them back to back today, mm -hmm. it it's like apples and oranges. Yeah. Because Helen Chandler's performance, I think, is fine. You know, I it's actually. Such a different on my little notes, and this is before I even saw the Spanish version, because the things that you always hear are like the two big, well, maybe three, the, the core performances are Bela Lugosi as Dracula, Dwight Fry as Renfield. And Edward Van Sloan as Van Helsing. And one of my notes was after watching uh, uh, Todd Browning's version was Mina actress underrated. Yes. Because I felt like, and specifically the scene that made me go like, oh, she's actually like doing something interesting, is the scene where she kind of where she's become, she's fallen under uh, Dracula's spell, and it's her sitting on the on the uh, porch with uh, John Parker. And she starts looking at him in this, like, like she's wants to uh, uh, bite him. And he's saying, you know, like, Mina, what's wrong? Like, you're looking at me in such a strange way. And the, the her performance in that scene, I was like, oh, she's actually bringing something kind of uh, frightening. And, and she looks uh, intimidating in that, in that moment. And she's such, like, a... a fragile creature before that but then all of a sudden she kind of steals up and becomes this like dangerous animal yeah like you can compare that to like um when we're first introduced to her and she's sort of like 
uh, mocking her friend Lucy for being into this dark count, and right. she's like, oh, I want someone normal, like John, and, like... Yeah. You look at, like, her in that scene, and then her later in that sort of, like, sort of seduction scene. Mm-hmm. You can really see her range right there. Yeah, so I, I think, uh... I think across the board, the, the, the performances are better in the English version. Uh, speaking of performances, people really like to um, talk shit about Edward Van Sloan. Really? How do you feel about him? I think he's doing a fine job. Okay. I, I don't... I don't. I, what do people uh, criticize about him? That he's wooden, uh, not very expressive. Um, and I think that, as Van Helsing, I think that's... He's, it's a very subtle performance, and maybe that's their issue with it. Like I'm, I like him in this yeah, now movie. Yeah, now now I'm uh, wondering. I'm like, is the, it, because I'm like, but he but he's playing Van Helsing. Like that's who Van Helsing is. Right. But I'm like, is that only because I know it because that because of his performance yeah, like, and that's he defines Van it's Helsing. Like that's not necessarily how Anthony Hopkins plays or uh, or Lawrence Olivier or other Van Helsings. Uh, Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing. Yeah. Um. But it's I think part of it might also be his uh, his big thick coke bottle glasses mm-hmm. uh like um but like in rewatching it today i was because i'd you know been reading a lot about it uh the past couple weeks since we talked about uh doing this episode and one of the common things is people are just like ah oh, you gotta deal with edward van sloan and it's just so it's kind of weird it's a weird thing to, to throw out there like every time he's on screen it's like oh i just want to fast forward and, like, the scenes that he dominates uh, tend to be the ones that people are always like, oh, well, this is the stagey part. Uh, once we're in London, everything just turns into a stage play. And I think that's just how people remember it. People who haven't watched it in a while remember it that way, but if you're actually watching it, the camera does move quite a bit. And when it's not moving, the actors are moving quite a bit. Like, I don't find... Well, first of all, the the term stagey, I don't really even have a problem with that, like, watching a film where it's like, oh, this is set up kind of like a play, like, camera is just like a proscenium arch, and they're just moving for it. I'm fine with that to begin with, but I don't think that really happens that much in this movie. And Van Helsing's um, confrontation with Dracula, where Dracula sort of puts him under his spell just for a moment. Right, yeah, yeah. It's Van Sloan really underplays it and i think that works for it but i don't know i mean that's my opinion and everybody's entitled yeah, I, but i think i think I know. you know i i really think if there wasn't this other version of the movie the spanish version yeah that shows this other sort of like what could have been because what a lot of people like to say is like oh the the ideal version of the movie would be bella lugosi in the spanish version yeah um, I foolishly said that myself several times in my life. <laughs> well, but it's, it sounds smart, you know. Yeah, yeah. That <laughs> sounds what like that's you, what I'm aiming for. <laughs> it sounds like you know what you're talking about when you when you say that. Um, but I, I mean, that's not to say that like I, I definitely think that there are examples in the Spanish version that are uh, staged more effectively than in the English version. Mm. Specifically, uh, the scene where uh, Mina is talking about her dream of Dracula and then Dracula comes in. Okay, yeah. I felt like that scene was kind of uh I liked the just the the the, the blocking of that uh more. I like the shots of Renfield on the ship on their way to England 
like mm. screaming, laughing maniacally at the window. Yeah, and you know, I also like Renfield because well, one thing that is weird in the English, in the English version is Renfield is always just like he just comes walking in the door. Yeah. And everyone's like, Renfield, what are you doing? How did you get out? And he's just like, I'm back, you know, hello. He just comes walking in the room. In the Spanish version, he's like outside hiding in the bushes or like on the other side of the door. And they, you know, kind of they're like, oh, they, they spot him. And you actually see a little bit of a, of a I guess you could say, deleted scene. Because I'm, I'm assuming it was in the script and they just didn't, they cut it out of the English version. Yeah, because both films had the same shooting script. Yeah. Um, there's a scene where you actually see Renfield's uh, cell and the bars are, are bent so we kind of see like how he is always escaping because when you're watching the English version you are kind of wondering like does do they just let the patients just wander around this house like what's going on here Bill Martin has that line where he's like I'm, I was going to try to do a cockney accent I'm not, <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> Oi, what are you doing out all there <laughs> he says something like he bent the bars like they was cheese <laughs> uh, sorry about that everybody um <laughs> But yeah, like they were cheese, I right. guess. Uh, um, and it kind of goes into that whole like show don't tell yeah. kind of thing, kind of issue that the English version has. Um, but one thing also that I think the English version has over the Spanish version is that it's shorter. The Spanish version kind of drags on a bit. It's like I think about twenty minutes longer, and I feel like the the English version is just a tighter experience. And some of that was. Um when they finished shooting the English language version, um, cuts were made by the studio, uh, I believe against Browning's wishes. And I'm not sure which cuts those were, like how much, how more similar the two films might've been if they left stuff in. I still don't think it would have been as long as the Spanish version is. Um, I don't remember the numbers exactly for like how many minutes. Um, and also for the Spanish version, I think, again, this is sort of like a, maybe like a bit of a, a racist thing. Um, the censors weren't too concerned with, like, cutting stuff out. I mean, this is pre-code, but the production code did exist. And studios were worried about, like, local censor boards being like, oh, well, you know, I saw this in this city, and it was this many minutes long. And then I went over to this city, and it was this many minutes long. You know, because everybody's just like, oh, I find this offensive, I'm going to cut this part out. You're saying um, that, like, the theaters would basically use their discretion to cut things out. Yeah, and um, so depending on what theater you saw it in, you might be right. seeing different things. Like one of the famous examples is in Frankenstein, um, when in the famous scene, you know, it's alive, it's alive. Yeah. Um, he, the Doctor Frankenstein, had a line that said, "Like now I know what it's like to be God." In the name of God, I know what it's like to. Yeah. Yeah, and that was the the, the audio of that was cut out, or did was it just a jump cut? Um, they put in like the the thunder sound effects which are already there in the background they, they just brought, kinda, them, like, up. brought them up yeah because that's when i first saw the movie um in like i don't like late 80s early 90s that line wasn't there it was all thunder right because it was that was uh that cut was actually when they re-released it after the production code did like gain strength they uh, they were like, well, you know, we'll give you your certificate so that you can re-release into theaters, but you got to make these cuts, and that's why uh, the scene with little Maria, um, right? It just instead of showing him throwing her into the water, it just had him kind of leering at her and leaning forward, and then and a then hard cut to, to like the father carrying her down yeah. the street, yeah, and <laughs> so, it's like, what the hell happened to her? Yeah, 
and yeah it makes the it makes the scene way more disturbing in a way to know to when you're left wondering like what did that beast do to her yeah and i feel like with the spanish version of dracula the censors um were like well you know if these people are speaking spanish they're probably already corrupt so let's just let them see these nipples or whatever you know and see this blood and right yeah um yeah, because we kind of mentioned uh, like the, the the fang bites. Yeah. Um, it, it's referenced a number of times in the English version of <laughs> Doctor Van Helsing looking through magnifying glasses, like you see these two little marks there. We, the audience, never get to see them, but in the Spanish version, we do cut to the close up of them, and uh, so I assume that it was like scenes like that that were probably in the English version that were cut out for censor issues, perhaps. But even, I mean, when they were shooting, you know, the, the actresses in the Spanish version are dressed a bit more revealing. Yeah. They're showing a bit, little bit of cleavage, whereas in the English version, uh, there's no... Especially there's none of that. Lupita Tovar and right. Viva. Um, which, that actually reminds me, um, so like uh, eight or nine years ago, I was at work one day. And I was sitting in the break room with our mutual friend, Kate. And somebody came in the room, and she said to me, I was sitting right across from her, she's like, I don't want to talk to this person. Tell me a story. Which really, it, you know, someone says that, that really puts you on the spot. So for some reason, like, the first thing that popped in my head, I was like, oh, uh, in the late 20s, Paul Koner, um, he, was, uh, he was working at Universal Studios, and he was pretty sure he was being groomed to be the head of production. And then... Uh, Carl Lemley Jr. ended up getting it as his 21st birthday present. So Paul Koner kind of got shafted, but he ended up being put in charge of these Spanish language versions of early sound films. And through that, he met the actress Lupita Tovar, who he fell in love with and was married to for many years. And for some reason, that was the story I told when she was like, quick, tell me a story. <laughs> Did she want to be put to sleep? Is that why you uh, started telling her that story? <laughs> no. Because I'm sure Kate was very interested to, to learn about that. She actually, after the story, she was like, I kind of want to know more about that. Oh, well, so, there you go. But, and then, yeah. I don't know if I ever told her more. I don't know much more, actually, beyond that. I mean, that's kind of the story. Yeah, I mean, I know uh, they ended up having a daughter, Susan Coner, who was in the, the Douglas Sirk version of Imitation of Life in the 50s. And then their grandkids were Chris Weitz and Paul Weitz, who wrote and directed American Pie. Oh. Yeah. And other things uh, about a boy, which I actually really like. One Grant. of yeah, one of them actually wrote uh, Star Wars Rogue One, or he was one of the credited writers on it. Awesome, that was a very good movie. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's. I mean, it's interesting. Were there other? Well, you mentioned like uh, that this was a common practice that Universal was doing at least. Yeah, before, before dubbing technology really took hold. Yeah, like how you know, how do we uh, you know you know we have this dialogue now we have to deal with. Yeah. We want to we can't just because with a silent movie you can show that anywhere. Yeah, cinema was like the great equalizer. Anybody yeah, you, could just you walk could in and watch it. Yeah. And maybe in other countries, you know, you just put up you just have to change out the title cards yeah. into a different language. But now you have this dialogue, and it's like, <laughs> what's the easiest way we can like you know uh, you know get the uh, a different language? And they're like, I know. We'll just film an enti entirely second movie, uh, in an, in just in another language. And there's a um, the film uh, the Cat and the Canary from 1927, uh, which was a silent film, 
and it's often thought of as like one of the big precursors to the sound universal horror films um they did a sound remake of it in 1930 and that one also had a spanish language version starring lupita tovar and i believe the english language version is definitely lost but i think somebody found the spanish language version but I'm not 100% on that, which that would be very interesting if, like, this alternate version exists, but the one that it was kind of based on is gone. Yeah. The silent version exists, and the various remakes of that over the years also exist, but... Hmm. And, um, like, over at, like, uh, at Hal Roach, Laurel and Hardy would actually... They would do foreign language versions of their films, but they themselves, because they were internationally known, um, they would just speak phonetically so they do like they'd get like they're like all right we've got the english take all right now let's do the spanish version (laughs) yeah and like these exist uh you can buy those on dvd and it's it's very they i remember they showed i think it was a german version of one of their films um on amc years ago they did like a laurel and hardy week where they just showed like everything back when amc used to be amazing like that right and it was it was really surreal because everything was the exact same. The supporting players were different. They would have actual like actors who spoke the other languages, but like Laurel and Hardy were just speaking these. It just seemed so wrong. Yeah. Because you expect a certain voice to come out of somebody with certain <laughs> right. words, and it's just. Uh. So is Dracula kind of the most famous example of that, or are there are there you know is there like it's a the only one ever, ever Spanish... anybody ever seems to talk about right yeah that's what i mean it, like there isn't like a you know spanish version of i don't know uh some other like a spanish version of citizen kane or something you know that would be insane <laughs> um <laughs> yeah by, by that time they definitely got dubbing down right that was and, like uh, that's a, like over a decade later yeah but... almost exactly a decade later yeah um yeah i'm i'm not really sure because I honestly don't know. I feel like um, it's possible that the Spanish version of Dracula gets a lot of attention because it's perceived as having, you know, um, being very high quality. Right. Or also possibly just because it was lost for so many years, and then when it was rediscovered and released in the early 90s, people were like, holy shit. Right. This is a whole new movie. And the other ones just kind of... They're not necessary. They weren't necessary to begin with. They were just like, oh, we this is an alternate thing to uh, tide people over until we can get this language thing figured out. So nobody was really concerned with preserving them. They were just disposable. Yeah. Which is, you know, kind of the mentality for most everything that was produced back then. Yeah, there's a ton of stuff that's been lost. Um, like I mentioned earlier, uh, London After Midnight. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, every, things would just be cut out, you know, deleted scenes, alternate take All that was just, like, immediately incinerated, basically. Yeah, like, I, I would love to... Someday I would love to see the screen test for uh, that Lugosi did for Frankenstein. Like, that'd be cool if, like, that popped up. Or, I mean, also the deleted scenes from Dracula. Mm-hmm. And um, even, I mean, getting away from the monsters a little bit, like, over at MGM, uh, the first movie the Marx Brothers did over there, Night at the Opera when it was they made it in 1935 and then it was re-released in the 40s during world war ii they cut out all references to italy because <laughs> they didn't want to offend people but it's a film that the opening scenes take place in italy <laughs> <laughs> but it's weird if you watch it it never says that and they uh 
It'd be cool if that showed up somewhere. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess just one final thing about the Spanish version. Uh, another bit of staging that I thought was an interesting difference was uh, the death of Renfield mm. at the end. Where in the English version, well, that 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 kind of plays out a little bit different too with with Mina, because in that version, Mina is like fully under Dracula's spell and is sort of like walking with him. Yeah. And Renfield comes in to the room of the big staircase and uh, Dracula sees that he inadvertently led Van Helsing to him and gets angry. He goes for him. He starts to choke him and then we kind of cut away and we cut back and he's sort of like slowly tumbling down the stairs. In the Spanish version, uh, Eva is unconscious and Dracula is carrying her and uh, when he sees Renfield, he kind of has to awkwardly kind of like put her down on the staircase yeah um which kind of does, kind of makes for an interesting shot though because she's sort of draped over the edge of the stairs yeah i think like her wrist is over the edge of it yeah which is in her hair and everything so like it looks kind of nice in that moment and then i mean dracula grabs hold of his neck and is like you know really strangling him and then throws him off the edge and he he falls you know to his death um yeah it's just an interesting uh it, it's it, it's just really interesting to see the choices that can really change the the mood and the feeling of of everything like i um i don't speak spanish at all really i took it for one year in junior high um, I, I took it for like five or six years through <laughs> middle school and high school and i don't remember any of it and um so like i uh don't always pick up on things i get like i'll i mean there's you know subtitles for the spanish language version so i know what everybody's saying but as far as inflections and stuff like right. that you know i'm not 100 percent on them uh, i feel like the renfield in the spanish version doesn't really come off as um let's say fey feminine as um dwight fry's performance mm. in the english language version and i feel like that removes some of the things people talk about with Browning's Dracula and the relationship right. between Renfield and Dracula where it's like, it's almost like those early scenes in Transylvania, which I feel like we haven't even talked about the early scenes. No, we haven't. No, and that's such a huge um, part of it. Yeah. Uh, like it's just like this one long seduction scene Yeah, where this guy who's, you know, he's all excited. He's going to meet this count at his big castle. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> and like, uh, and he gets there and he just, the count claims him for his own and mm-hmm. shuns away the the women yeah and then so i mean in the early scenes which is a big chunk of the film it's just dracula and renfield and their interactions with each other yeah and then renfield sort of becomes a minor character throughout but then at the end he's a huge part of it cuz well first of all he leads van helsing and jonathan harker uh to uh, Dracula mm-hmm. um, and I mean he's you know he's murdered by Dracula and it's like it's very tragic because it's like it's like he's in love with Dracula and Dracula's like no I got this girl here now right like yeah, you, yeah. you fuck off like I'm gonna just kill you because I'm gonna take this girl mm-hmm. uh, and we're gonna go hang out in our coffins like he wants to get in that coffin with him <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but he's just thro- he's disposed well, and he's, he's like you know you can away. do anything to you want that any, you can do anything to me that you want master you can whip me torture me do whatever you want yeah 
Like, please, I'll be good. And what is... What is Renfield for? What is Dracula using him for? Yeah, no idea. I, I imagine during the trip from Transylvania on the boat, yeah, he could be there to essentially like protect him, right? Uh, keep anyone away from dis- yeah, watch over him. him while the sun's up and stuff. Like yeah, that. exactly. Um, but I mean, once they're in London, he's in the uh, sanitarium. I mean, he can leave at any time. It seems he's you know he can just walk out. But I don't know. Yeah, he isn't really doing anything. Uh... It would make sense if he was the one who was like letting Dracula in all the time. But usually he just hypnotizes like uh, one of the nurses or the maid or something. Right. Yeah. If it was um, like you know, oh Renfield, I need you to go in and like get rid of all the crucifixes and the wolfsbane and all that kind of stuff. But he speaks of. I mean, like the image where he says like the rats upon rats and like all this mm-hmm. like um. Like, Dracula's trying... He's getting him to do something. Yeah, because he's like, he promised me, you know, if I if I serve him or whatever. Yeah, like, is he just giving Dracula blowjobs? <laughs> is that, is that, what that all it is? I don't know. Like, what is, like... <laughs> I don't know what is happening well, there. I mean, Renfield is clearly... Kind of sucking. Renfield is clearly the bottom in that relationship. But, like... <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's very, it's very vague. And um, I have a confession to make about uh dracula which is for years i'd be like oh yeah dracula by ram stoker i've read that book many times never read it i have never read that book oh geez yeah i've started reading it on numerous occasions i've dipped into it as if it was a bible like i'll read a chapter here and there just to look into something but as far as just reading it like a regular book beginning to end i uh i'm not there yet i'll get there you no I've read. I've I've done basically what you're describing. Yeah. With Frankenstein. I also have not read Frankenstein, and that, that's. I feel like that's ridiculous that I haven't read either of these poems. <laughs> like. <sighs> yeah, there's something I don't know, kind of nice about letting. Those films kind of be the definitive versions of those stories. And I read all the like all, all this uh, information about the different versions and everything. Like, oh, this one's more authentic and this one's closer to the book and all that stuff and uh like every time there's a new dracula movie they're like well we're trying to get closer to the book yeah, they always say that, and then right? it's like so it's like oh okay i guess that's what the book is like and yeah. then all of a sudden you compare the other movies and you're like wait a minute but i think what you're getting at with renfield yeah is there i don't know if there's more with well i mean in the book jonathan harker is the one who goes right. to transylvania and he's like the the real estate agent or whatever that helps dracula move to england yeah um so that's already switched and and I'm wondering why. Maybe they didn't want to make it like a weird love triangle where like, Dra- like Jonathan Harker is with Mina, but he's in love with Dracula, who's in love with Mina, <laughs> and like I don't know, like that would have been interesting, but maybe not for 1931, uh, mm-hmm. Hollywood film. But like in making Renfield the one who goes in the early scenes. Um, I don't know. I, I honestly, I don't really have an interpretation of what's going on there besides gay jokes. Like, <laughs> I think, I mean, by putting Renfield in there, it gives you, it shows you, you get to see the before and after with Renfield. Mm. Like you see him pre-Dracula and then I actually, it's really interesting where it's like, 
he, you know, Renfield goes into the castle. He has the, you know, the, the little dinner there with, with Dracula. You know, mm-hmm. I never drink wine. That all happens. Renfield collapses. Dracula envelops him with his cape. And then we just cut to on the boat. And Renfield is a madman. Yes. We miss everything in between. Um, I think, like, uh, if it was Jonathan Harker, I feel like, you know, y- y- you don't drive him mad in that way because he in the in the real story you know he uh stays sane i guess you'd say and is a part of this sort of love triangle that you're describing Mm. um or because he's in love with mina and mina is like falling for dracula and all this kind of stuff um i think it's it's uh it kind of shows the the danger of getting involved with Dracula. Okay. And what he does to other people, you know, how he uses other people. So then when we see him, you know, going after, uh, Mina, you know, we don't want her to wind up like Renfield. I mean, on one level we don't, but as like a a film goer, we kind of do because, right. (laughs) Because in, in movies, if not necessarily in real life, crazy girls are awesome. Yeah, and like I said, like <laughs> one of my favorite parts of with her is when she starts to turn yeah. in that scene yeah. with uh, on the porch there. Yeah, like I kind of get why. Like what you're saying that that's a good point. It makes sense as far as like why the the filmmakers would do it, but the character kinda, of Dracula, the filmmaker, yeah, because I think like filmmaking wise, it simplifies the story in a way yeah. that like you don't have to. Uh, I don't know cross over from into this thing where John knows more about what's going on than everybody else and and the the other thing that's always kind of bugged me well there's a couple of other things but one of the other things like kind of on that level that's kind of bugged me about the movie that the Spanish language version actually does clear up slightly is the very end of the movie Van Helsing yeah uh He's just killed Dracula. Yeah. Um, and Mina and John are like, aren't you coming with us? And he's like, no, you must go. I've got something, something to do. To do. <laughs> and then yeah. the movie ends. Yeah. And like in the Spanish language version, he says something like, I made a promise to Renfield. Yeah, that he would... Uh, that's actually like the, the final shot of the Spanish version is, I think, a much better ending mm. because it's it's a nice wide shot you see the uh the couple john and and eva or juan and eva yeah. ascending the staircase and then van helsing looking down on renfield's uh corpse but yeah in the english version it's just like he's just down there in the next to Dracula's body <laughs> and he's like uh <clears throat> you guys go i got uh, some something else to uh finish up here uh. <laughs> it's like okay what uh... <laughs> that about yeah i did hear that um there was supposedly a deleted scene that would have taken place after the movie with edward van sloan addressing the audience yes so i wonder if it was a setup for that where he's like you guys go on ahead i've got something i need to clear up and then he would sort of like break the fourth wall and say you know something to the effect of like the film you just witnessed was i don't know what he would say about it but yeah and he says, like, just remember... I, I don't remember the exact words, but it's like, uh, you know, as you're walking home from the theater in the dark, just remember, there are such things, or something like that. Like, mm. just to creep everybody out. That would have... I never... I knew about 
that ending, which uh, is one of those things that's lost. Um, but yeah, I never thought that, like, oh yeah, they could have just put it right there and had him just, like, turn, and all of a sudden he's at Van Sloan instead of Van Helsing. Yeah. And, um, that would have been really effective. But yeah, as it stands, with that weird, ambiguous ending, five years later, Dracula's Daughter, which is one of those rare sequels that picks up, like, right yeah, at the end of the first immediately one. Immediately after the events. It's almost like he's like, oh, you know what? We were pretty blatantly murdering this guy in this castle. Somebody might have a problem with that. I think the police might be coming. You two must go. I'll handle this myself. Because in Dracula's Daughter... Mina and John are nowhere to be found. They're yeah. not coming to like, oh no no no, he's right. It yeah, was, and you're, and you're like, left because like uh, you know like the police do show up and and it's funny to watch both of those movies back to back. Yeah, because there's just a sudden change in tone <laughs> to the beginning of uh, Dracula's <laughs> Daughter, where these two bumbling police officers are like, you know, oh I'm not going in there. You go in there, and it's like, oh you know, it's like this totally different yeah. comedic tone, and uh, yeah, Van Helsing's there. And, you know, the, he's trying to explain to them that it was a vampire and they're like, you know, not believing him or whatever. And then it cuts to him and he's in the commissioner's office or whatever. Yeah. And he's like, well, you know, who, who will believe you? And he's like, I only know one man who would possibly believe me. And I'm like, oh, you mean John Harker and maybe Mina who were like there to witness everything? <laughs> Dr. Seward? <laughs> yeah, Dr. <laughs> Seward. Yeah, who was totally I imagine there. would be a respectable part of yeah, that community. Yeah, totally. Um, but then he's like, you know, my old colleague from <laughs> who has no idea what any of this is all about. <laughs> like, he'll know. <laughs> so it is weird. Watching Dracula as a child, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly how old I was. Uh, it was shortly after Edward Scissorhands came out, because I remember that the tape I had it on uh, also had Edward Scissorhands on it from when it first premiered on HBO. So probably make, maybe like a year after Edward Scissorhands is a, when it might have been on HBO. I'm not sure how that worked back then. But anyway, at the end of the movie, they you know they ascend that staircase like it's like Orpheus and Eurydice like getting out of uh, underworld underworld the underworld, and then it cuts to the like the little like it's a universal picture thing with the Earth and the plane going around it. Mm -hmm. And as a little kid watching it, I'm like, oh. They're getting away. They're flying to America. <laughs> I don't know why. I was like, they're on that plane and they're flying to America. That's yeah. That's pretty awesome. I like that. <laughs> so yeah, I never every, really had every any Universal movie ends with main <laughs> characters flying to America. <laughs> well, look how terrifying Europe is in these movies. <laughs> yeah, everywhere you look, there's like some crazy person trying to do something to you. And like I. I like the idea of Europe in the Universal Horror movies because um, this is one of those rare movies that's like, well, rare for the Universal Horror movies where it's like, this part is specifically in Transylvania, they go to a place called Borgo Pass, there's Castle Dracula, and then over here there's London, there's Carfax Abbey. Um, but a lot of them are just like, where the hell are we? <laughs> right, there's you're, all you're these... in, in some sort of ambiguous Euro middle European... Yeah. town somewhere and like Dracula definitely has that with uh, the time period which because yeah. time and place are very fluid in universal horror movies which I think is something to its benefit it's like a fairy tale I love it yeah totally and it's like it's a it's it becomes timeless in that way where yeah. it's like it's unclear if it's in the 20th century is it the 19th century is it 
Like, what, you know, when the hell are we? Yeah, and part of it might be because the people making the films, um, you know, they're often there'd be, like, European immigrants involved, and they're like, oh, we're making a movie that takes place in Eastern Europe. I'm from Eastern Europe. It's just like this. And it's like, well, that's what it was like when you left 20 years ago, maybe. (laughs) So, like, the scene in Transylvania, you know, everybody is all, like, gussied up in their peasant garb and stuff. Like, I feel like in 1931, you know, this is between the two world wars, like, I feel like people might have had a car or something. And, like... (laughs) Yeah, but... a lot of the movies wind up with this interesting fusion with like, you know, they have modern sort of electricity and telephones and all these sorts of things. But then it's, you know, at the same time, it feels like they're still in the middle of, you know, 1800s or something. That's one thing I really liked about um, the movie, the love witch that came out this past year. It's watching the film. You're like, Oh, this is sort of in the style of those like late sixties, early seventies exploitation films. And um, it seems to take place right then. And then every now and then you're like, wait, that person just took out their phone out of their pocket? Or, like, wait, that person's driving a car from, like, ten years ago? Like, it's just mm. random things that kind of throws you. And I, But I think it, like, actually adds to the film. I mentioned there, there was a, another thing that kind of bothered me, and that is, you kind of mentioned it earlier, the handling of the, the Lucy character. Right. It, in, if you watch the Spanish-language version, it kind of um, uh, complements the English-language version. Like, oh they're in that spot because of this event that's in this other movie like when van helsing and jonathan harker see renfield and they follow him to carfax abbey at the end Mm -hmm. they're just like out there in the middle of the night outside right and you're like why are are they they doing yeah and there was there is a line of dialogue earlier where van helsing says something to mina like you know don't worry after tonight lucy's soul will be at rest or something along those lines yep so maybe you could infer like, oh, that they were out there killing Lucy. But, it, it's, but you know, there's no real evidence to yeah. suggest that until but, you watch the Spanish version. Right. And the, it, we don't really see much of that, but it's more of them coming out and they're sort of brushing their hands off like, boy, well, we, good thing we <laughs> killed Lucy, huh? Like, that was crazy. <laughs> and, just, and watching that scene, I just think of like... Um, the way they handle the killing of Lucy in Bram Stoker's Dracula, the Francis Ford Coppola film, mm-hmm. which is just like an extremely gory scene that is wonderfully parodied in uh, Mel Brooks's Dracula Dead and Loving It. Uh, but like, I just imagine them just like just blood gushing everywhere, so and then the, and then these two guys come out speaking Spanish they're just kind of like yeah just kind of brush their hands like well alright well, yeah. and they're like hey isn't that Renfield over there like, and then they follow well, and, time yeah. for this adventure yeah so uh, before we move on I just have like a couple of sort of random things about Dracula oh yeah it's interesting to me there, there are these uh, the, the animals that we see in the, in the movie yeah it's odd because you I mean Renfield's talking about rats so you'd expect to see rats, but well, rats instead are a bit unseemly. <laughs> so instead, we get armadillos and possums, and there's that bug that has its own little coffin. <laughs> yeah, which why? Is such a weird. Does the bee? Is that have... a bee? That is, it that looks like a bee to okay. me. It's it's ridiculous because it's like it, it's it is Dracula's grand entrance, and you know we're seeing like Dracula's wives, sort of coming out of their coffins. And there's that one skeleton arm in the coffin where it's like, oh, that vampire didn't make it. 
yeah. Which is, it's weird that there's this other coffin there, and like uh, there's like a history there. Yeah. Which is something that like I th- is is really interesting that like it feels like we're dropped into the middle of this ongoing story. Yeah. This ongoing story. Well, he's been there for hundreds of he's years. He's been there so. for hundreds of years. Yeah. He already has these like women living in his castle, which we never really know anything about. Um, and he's heard of Van Helsing before. When he finds out Van Helsing's name, yeah, he's, and he's like, like, oh, oh the famous, the, yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, and apparently there's, like, he, somewhere along the line, he converted a bee um, to vampirism <laughs> because the bee comes crawling out of its own coffin. It's adorable little coffin. Like, was that just, like, a, like a, just a sight gag that they put in? Or, like, what, were they trying to make it, like, uh, make a joke? I what really don't that? know. I think it could have just been one of those random macabre touches that... Just like a blackly humorous joke. I, I don't know. It's odd. It is. It is. And very it puts odd. you a little at ease. And that might have been the. It's like let's just put some weird shit here so the audience knows that all bets are off. Mm. Like, I don't know if it works. It's it it just feels it odd because I mean like a bee, and like a possum. Just are not things that you associate with like, Dracula at all. Watching it as a kid, the armadillo was something that I never even thought twice about. I was like, oh, they have armadillos in Transylvania. Okay. But they don't. No, <laughs> they... armadillos are, like, pretty specific to the American Southwest. Yeah, which, that's why when they made the movie, they had to order those armadillos. So they, um, they, they're, like, specifically, like, we need armadillos. They had them shipped from, like, Mexico or New Mexico or something. And they, unfortunately, um, the first time they tried shipping them... <laughs> Uh, the, the, the handlers or whoever was in charge of shipping them, I guess, didn't know much about animals. So they put these two armadillos in the same crate as uh, rattlesnakes. And they're like, oh, armadillos, they have that, you know, armor on. They're good. Oh, my no, Lord. No, that did not end well. Um, that's, uh, I read that in Hollywood Gothic, uh, the David J. Scull's first book about uh, the Dracula legends, sort of, um, the history of the character. Uh, I mean, they eventually, as you can see in the movie, they eventually got some living armadillos, but... Was it worth the death, the horrible <laughs> death of these two armadillos to put these armadillos in the, in this movie? PETA should have all prints destroyed. Yeah, maybe the modern-day censors can, like, cut that out. It's yeah. too controversial. Yeah. <laughs> the uncut Dracula, too controversial to see. <laughs> armadillos! <laughs> it's odd that, um... You know, these films were made so long ago, there's only, like, a handful of people who had anything to do with the Universal monster movies that are still around to talk to, and um, it was only in the past, like, couple years that uh, Lupita Tovar, from the Spanish-language version, and uh, Carla Lemley, who was the first person to have any dialogue in Dracula as uh, the young woman on Renfield's coach, they, like, just passed away the past couple years. Mm. I believe they were both over 100 years old. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. Carla Lemley, of course, being another example of nepotism with Uncle Carl Lemley. She was also a ballerina in the Lon Chaney Phantom of the Opera. Oh, really? Yeah. Another oddity that uh, I didn't realize until this subsequent viewing of the movie, and not until I watched the commentary, was that there are a couple of shots where you can actually see a piece of cardboard fastened to a lamp. David J. Scal, who did the, I referenced his book uh, a minute ago, and he's the one who does the commentary. He has very definite ideas of what that is and why it's there, but it, I don't it, know if I agree. Well, it seems to be like, uh, you know, usually when you're 
um, setting up all your lights, you, 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 you put flags, as they're called, like in front of a light to block it from shining in certain areas of the, of the scene. Right. So it seems like they had this practical lamp that they put this uh, cardboard on to sort of diffuse the light and uh, just for some reason forgot that it was there or just, you know, they didn't realize it was in the shot. But, I mean, it's like front yeah. and center. And it's crazy that I never noticed it until I heard the commentary. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. I watched it over and over growing yeah, up. Yeah, and, and you see it and you're like, oh my gosh, yeah, that's right there. Now you can never not see it. Yeah, now it's like forever there, this like random piece of cardboard. When it first appears, um, at what at what point in the film does it first appear? It's when uh, Dracula is uh, entering Lucy's room, I believe. It's either when it's either when he's entering Lucy's room or or Mina's room. It is in Mina's room. Okay, um, this is probably. But in, I wasn't sure Mina. if it was in Lucy's also, because I. It's possible and. Gary Don Rhodes, who I mentioned earlier, who had written that article about uh, the horror myths, um, in a separate piece that he had done. I don't know if it was an interview with him or something he wrote. Uh, he was thinking, like, oh, well, if this person has been getting sick and they suddenly have an aversion to sunlight or bright light, they might put oh. something there blocking the light. So the room is still lit, but there's not, like, a direct lamp right in your there face. There you go, okay. So there's that possibility, but, and I probably, having watched it three times over the course of the past two weeks, I probably should have watched more closely as to when it first appears, because if we first see it the first time Dracula goes to Mina's room, then no, that's not what it is. So they're saying that this isn't, may not have been a mistake, but may have been purposely put there to suggest that. Right, or also it could have been a mistake, but, but we can we sort can... of like retcon it to be like yeah. in our head cannons we can say like oh yeah that's there to block out the light I like that I'm fine with that I do that a lot with things that I'm like oh what's wrong with oh no you know maybe this yeah yeah and I think it's a you know it's a testament to the fact that like a lot of times those kinds of uh, uh, movie mistakes what do you call my, my mind is blank film flubs Film flubs, um, continuity errors, and, and the like. Yeah. A lot of times they don't really matter to the uh, to the actual experience of watching it. I mean, yeah. I can say like getting into editing of movies and stuff, you can obsess over so many little details like that. But you know, at the end of the day, um, like Martin Martin Scorsese is kind of famous for of being of the mind of like if the take is good and the performance is there and like the shot is great, I don't care if there's like you know. Yeah. Oh, the the glass of water was you know full in this shot, and then we cut away, and now it's you know half full or whatever. Like those details don't affect the actual viewing experience of the movie. And there are a few things that, in that same commentary, uh, David J. Scal brings up that, like as continuity errors, that I don't I don't believe they're continuity errors um, in the for, in the scene where Dracula is showing Renfield his room and he has dinner there. Um, and in the commentary he'll say, like, oh, and as you see between these two shots, all of a sudden his bed is turned down or all of a sudden his luggage is over there. And all right, of a sudden this yeah. Is... And it's like, or 
what's happening is Dracula is a fucking supernatural creature <laughs> right. who is just doing this shit. Like, I don't know. Like, I think it adds to the I mean, we, the, we already the see, like, the doors are just here. opening by themselves and Renfield's like, well, what's going on? Um, yeah. And, or, and, and the great moment when, like, uh, he walks up the stairs. And this is also something, like, comparing the, uh, the English and the Spanish version of when Dracula walks up the stairs in his castle and there's that giant spider web. Yeah. And he seems to pass through it. I feel like I like it a lot more in the English version because it's not so like plainly in your face about it. In the Spanish version, it's very clear of like, oh, he's walking and he's getting really close to the web, and then like we kind of cut away and then cut back quick and he's on the other side. And a lot of double takes for Renfield. Yeah, and he's like, what? How did? But you were? How did you? What the? What's going on? <laughs> you know, it's that sort of thing. In the English version, it's more of just kind of like a you can almost miss it. Yeah. Where it's just Which I, like, I feel like I did for years. Yeah, like I, I you know, it, it's he's just you know because he we cut away when he's still kind of far. He's not as close to the to the web, so it's kind of like when Renfield gets up there and he like knocks down the web. You kind of have to put it together yourself of like, oh, how did Dracula get through there? Um, yeah. How do you feel about Dracula? Um being the driver of the coach that meets Renfield at Borgo Pass. And there's another thing that they bring up in the commentary. Right, yeah. His face is just open. This actually, as a child, disturbed me. This moment. <laughs> because I'm like, oh, that's Dracula right there. And then Renfield makes no mention of anything about it. Like, mm-hmm. and he'll talk about, like, oh, the driver did this. Like, right. like in the, and it was like... As a, as a small child, I'm like, he doesn't know that's Dracula. Or, like, he, he didn't reckon... Like, it was weird to me as a child. It, it, it was very odd and creepy. Mm-hmm. And, um... I mean, this could be just more, you know, like you were saying, the, the retcon or whatever. But, like, I mean, Dracula, he, he's, he can hypnotize people. He's yeah. got these powers over the mind. He can just, like, look directly at Renfield and just... Well, and it's also, like, Renfield saw the driver for like two seconds when he was walking into the into the coach he's like oh is this the dracula's castle and he kind of gives him a stare down and then he just gets in we don't know how long the 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 coach ride was you know we kind of jump ahead but he could have been in there for like two hours maybe yeah um and he you know he's like and he hasn't seen the driver because then he looks out to to talk to him there's just a bat there yeah so he doesn't really remember and it was dark you know he doesn't know what it looks like i like it and but what is interesting to me is that like we see the the introduction of dracula is purely for the audience like it's not we're not we don't see dracula for the first time through renfield's eyes we go into the castle ourselves as the audience into the basement and we see him come out of the coffin and he stares directly at us as we get closer to him and i think that that's it's an interesting choice because they're doing this whole thing with the driver where if it's like, if we didn't see that beforehand, when the driver's introduced, it wouldn't yeah. be unusual. Because it would just be like, oh, who's this guy? And then the reveal would be like, oh, that was that was Dracula. But instead it's like, we know that that's Dracula. We just saw him. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, because he, when he's talking to the villagers, when Renfield's talking to the villagers and they're warning him about all this stuff, uh, the vampires, Dracula and his wives, you know... The audience could be, especially in 1931, the audience would be like, oh, these people are crazy. They're being tricked by somebody. And then 
cut to you see Dracula and his wives getting out of their coffins. Yeah. And it's like... It shows you, like, that he is a vampire, and he, for sure. <laughs> and Redfield is on his way to yeah. doom. Basically. Yes. It's like... Um, the way Hitchcock would talk about suspense sequences. Mm-hmm. Like you let the audience know about the danger, even if you don't let yeah, the you, character you know. Yeah, you show the bomb under the table yeah. without the without the pe- people sitting at the table knowing that there's a bomb. Um, I just said, you see Dracula and his, uh, his wives getting out of their coffins, which actually reminds me, um, you never really do see Dracula getting into or out of a coffin. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it happens. Like, the camera will go away right. and it'll come back. There'll be, uh, in the Spanish language version, there's, like, the this mist smoke, and stuff. smoke, yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if it's just because, if you think about what that would actually look like, it would not be graceful. Right. And I'm wondering if they're like, no, no, no. This, we don't want to just humanize this guy by having him, like, climb out of a coffin. <laughs> yeah. <And> I, <laughs> he kind of creaks out. He's like, oh, my back. <laughs> yeah. And, like, you could do, like, the, the Nosferatu shot where he just kind of pivots up. Right. Um, yeah. Where he, where he's, like, just right angle, like, boing. Yeah. Um, but that also, at, at that time, like, in a sound film, might have seemed too comical. Mm. Although they are throwing in the B coffin, so maybe not. But I'm wondering if that's the only reason they did it, just because it wouldn't look slick enough i'm not sure i i yeah i'm I'm thinking that that makes a lot of sense and i think a lot of those uh sort of hiding those things elevates the mystery in a lot of ways yeah like we'll talk about the uh the the two sequels that it spawned well it spawned more sequels but we'll talk about i disagree disagree about what i think it had one sequel one okay and then i think there are other two Dracula other Draculas. <laughs> right. But, like, I just watched Son of Dracula. And in that, like, we see the transformation into a bat. Lon Chaney, we see him sort of, like, it's like an animated thing where you, like, you know, we see him actually form into a bat and vice versa. And you see him form out of mist in that And we see him form out of mist. I think uh, there's something more mysterious about we see this bat by the window and we kind of pan over to see sleeping Lucy. Mm-hmm. And then we pan back and Dracula's in the room. It's all, it almost becomes too cartoony and not as uh, frightening to see him actually like transform. One thing I was going to say about the um, Dracula's exposed face when being the carriage driver. Uh, I forgot to add this. Um, it's also possible, like earlier we were talking about uh, after he kills the flower girl and he's walking and everybody's go walking past him because he's just, you know, this noble count right. all gussied up. It could be that Renfield being, a, I, I don't know what level of society he might be, you know, he's, he's, he's a businessman of some mm-hmm. sort, he's a realtor, I don't know. He might just see this carriage driver and be like, oh, that's just a carriage driver. And then when he sees this count, this nobleman, he might not even... It might not even cross his mind that they could possibly be the same. Well, why would you that? think that they are the same? You know, like, yeah. it, to me, it makes a lot of sense mm. that, you know, you wouldn't put those two together because it's impossible. You know, how could it be that the driver is the count, you know? Yeah. Um, so your mind will, will make those leaps to rationalize it. I remember in... Um the film Shadow of the Vampire, which is sort of like a fictional retelling of the making of Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. Uh, Willem Dafoe 
as yeah. yeah Willem Dafoe as Max Schreck who's, who was the actor who played Nosferatu was talking about when he read the Stoker novel and the part of uh, the novel that affected him the most he said was the scene where Jonathan Harker accidentally sees Count Dracula like setting a table and the Nosferatu character in Shadow of the Vampire is like He's like, how embarrassed he must have been, like this nobleman who was reduced to setting his own table. Hmm. And this is my... I, I have not seen Shadow of the Vampire in a very long time. Yeah, so these, these are my vague memories of what he said. I don't know verbatim, but like I just remember that like that idea was there. And um, I don't know, I can see that tying in with him being the carriage driver. Not to keep dwelling on that, I'm sorry. <laughs> but like... <laughs> Like oh, this is so embarrassing! I'm driving, driver. My, I'm driving my own carriage. <laughs> right, yeah, uh, it, it'll be it, better it, if I just turn into a bat. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, it's odd. There are so many movies with fake bats in them, like, that, and like one <laughs> percent of those movies do it well. Maybe my one one note that I wrote that like I don't even I didn't even have any sort of follow up. I just wrote bat technology. Yeah, because I'm like you know it, it is weird how many bats were used and how poor of an effect it is, except for. The scene with the carriage ride. I love that bat. I think <laughs> yeah. that's very, and I think it's because it's out in the open and it's just right. like flapping and like. And I think like with the horses, it gives it a real sense of movement, yeah. like because it's attached. Obviously, the bat's attached to the carriage that's actually moving, mm. so it's like it feels like we're like it. It is you know flying along. It's not just sort of like go like waving back and forth. You know, it's actually like flying through the air. Yeah, it doesn't like take you out of it too much or like even. I mean, like the scene where the bat goes after uh Jonathan Harker on the balcony mm-hmm. and um <laughs> like that uh, I don't know you know that's not great <laughs> but I'm still at that point I'm invested in the film and I'm fine with it right um but there are certain there's other <laughs> like, films there's like that's back <laughs> like the the hammer film Brides of Dracula um which I think a lot of people really love that movie and say it's a great movie, but there are a few things like that that keep it from hitting that level for me. The bats in that movie are like the worst bats ever. What's weird is that like they went through all this trouble to get these armadillos in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> They're shipping them from across the country. They had to reorder them because the, they died in transit. Like, Couldn't they get like a couple of bats just to shoot like some insert shots, you know, of the bat like in the corner of the room or something, you know? Is there, like, one shot of a real bat at some point? I don't think, think so. I don't think so. Yeah. I could be wrong, but uh, I don't, in my memory, I don't, I only imagine that big, floppy, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, slow-winged bat. And that's the weirdest thing about all, you know, and it, what's strange is that it's just, like, how long did it take in movie history to get to the point where, like, bats looked convincing on film? Do you think we're there now? I'm sure with CG, like, you can get some good-looking bats. Maybe I'm not. I'm not actually sure. I can't think of any movies that really have a lot of bats lately. Um, oh, Batman Begins. There's a whole thing. Oh, bats. okay. And they look pretty good. Yeah, they look good. All right, that's like. That was 2005. That was 2005. Oh, okay, cool. So like 12 years ago. So yeah, it took all the way till Batman Begins to get some like gosh darn looking bats. <laughs> I feel like the bats in. Um... Probably in in Coppola's Dracula, the bats look better, right? They're not holding a bat on a string. I'm trying to remember. I don't know. That is a film I need to revisit at some point. Maybe we'll do it on an episode of this uh, someday. Yes. But, um, 
I know that they tried to use a lot of practical effects on Coppola's film, but at the same time, they did use CGI for certain scenes. Like, there's a morphing moment and stuff like that. And it is early 90s CG, so yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's just it's just weird. The, uh, the you know, the bat effect has eluded so many filmmakers for so long. And it's such a central part of, like, yeah. horror movies. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's, they're, they're used so often, but it's just such a cheap-looking thing. So there's... All right, there's Todd Browning Dracula and the Spanish-language Dracula. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a year later, uh, Carl Freund, who was the cinematographer for Dracula, and um, some people, like David fucking Manners, uh, you know, kind of give him a lot of the credit for Dracula's uh, greatness, but I don't know. Uh, he directed a film in 1932, which is in some ways a loose remake of Dracula. It's like his own version of Dracula, which would be The Mummy. Hmm. I mean, if you think about the similarities between the two of them, like, you could make any movie involving a mummy. Yeah. And he's like, let's make a movie where this, this guy's in love with this girl who's right. with David fucking Manners. Yeah. And, uh, like, his father is... Is his father played by this? No, I don't think it's the same guy who played Dr. Seward. But he, no, no, it's not. But it's, like, sort of a Dr. Seward-like guy there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, your Edward Van Sloan in there. Right. As the 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 helpful know-it-all scientist guy. Egyptologist. Yeah. Yeah, and, I mean, it is, like, it's another example of the monster walking among men and going unseen. Yeah. And, um... Which is interesting because, you know, it, in that movie, is it's not the the classic mummy that you think of when you think of mummy movies. Yeah, you've got that one scene at the you beginning. you get the one scene at the beginning where you barely see him. <laughs> you don't he, even see him walk. He went for a little walk. He went for yeah. a little walk. You should have seen his face. Um, yeah, and then... That sort of... Like, one thing that a lot of different versions of Dracula play upon is sort of like this uh, love through the ages thing, uh, which they kind of touch upon in like the original Nosferatu, where um, Nosferatu sees, um, I don't remember what the character's name is in that version, but Mina, basically, sees her picture, and it's like, ooh, and suddenly taken with her. And in other versions, it's like, oh, she's the reincarnation of my old lost love. Like, hmm. uh, the Coppola version plays on that a little bit. Right. And in... Uh, Carl Freund's The Mummy. Yeah, that's, I mean, straight up what, it, what it's about. Yeah. So it's weird that, like, The Mummy kind of took all these elements from Dracula, and then other Dracula films sort of took some elements from The Mummy in turn. <laughs> and it's just, all the horror movies kind of snowball together into one long film spanning the centuries. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it's interesting because later on, Universal would cross over all of their various monster series into, uh, I guess you could say, a shared universe. Um, it was before that terminology was common at all. Mm. Um, but you had movies like, you know, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, where it was a total cross-section between the Frankenstein series and the, the Wolfman series, and all the continuity that had come before them in those film franchises uh, were both present in that. For the most part, give or take. They tried, but it's... <laughs> but, I mean, it, it, you know, Frankenstein monster is 
a culmination of of the things that had happened yeah. to him, at least loosely. And you have Lon Chaney back as the Wolfman, and that's a, it's essentially a direct sequel to the Wolfman. Um, but what's really sad about like, you know, you look at like just the the huge catalog of films that Universal put out, featuring all of these great characters, all these great actors, like Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff, and Lon Chaney, all these guys, and putting them into all these you know roles. Bela Lugosi never made another Dracula movie for Universal. It t- it took all the way until uh, Abbott and Costello, right, for him to actually yeah formally return to the role. Which like technically, like I personally don't consider that part of like the true like Universal horror canon, if you will, because uh, that's after they merged and became Universal International, and it was sort of like this whole other thing. Mm. And it also that movie like the film that technically would have come before it in continuity house of dracula like the way that the characters end up at the end of house of dracula has no relation whatsoever to the way abbott and costello meet frankenstein begins right um but it's just it's just funny because it's like bella lugosi is so famous for that role and is so identified with it and he is the dracula that you think about when you think of the universal monster films you know you think of boris karloff as frankenstein's monster Lon Chaney as the Wolfman, Boris Karloff as the Mummy, even though he only played the Mummy once. Yeah. But Bela Lugosi as Dracula, and uh, it, they made a sequel, but unfortunately it didn't have uh, Dracula. <laughs> yeah, and Lugosi got paid more for not appearing in Dracula's Daughter than he made for actually appearing in Dracula. Well, that's incredible. Yeah. But I think it's like, <laughs> it's it's really kind of a shame, you know, because you can imagine what a true sequel could have been if you know about like him returning from the grave i mean like hammer did it over and over again with christopher lee i mean that dracula you couldn't you couldn't keep him dead and i mean technically later on universal kind of did it with john carradine right with his two dracula uh films where mm-hmm. like one of them it's like oh he gets unstaked but then the sun like gets him, and then in the next movie he just magically appears with no explanation and and you know like Lon Chaney starred as quote unquote Dracula I mean he was Count Dracula in uh, in the film Son of Dracula yeah um but he's technically like maybe a loose descendant of Dracula he goes by the name Count Alucard um I think his business card says Dr. Acula (laughs) not not really yeah um and Lon Chaney is a is a fine actor. I mean, like he really shines in, like the Wolfman role. And he gave a lot of underrated performances in the Inner Sanctum series. And then of course there's Lenny in Of Mice and Men, which is probably his oh, crowning yeah, achievement acting wise. But I just you know I don't buy him as Dracula, really. Watching Son of Dracula. Now I haven't, I haven't watched that film in a while. Um, but. Like the way I the way I remember it is like he's, like I don't think he's that Dracula. I don't mean like very. He's not that Dracula. No, yeah, he's he, a little Dracula. Well, he's not supposed I to mean, be the exact character that Belagosi played. Right, but like he is Count Dracula, but it's not like it's a, a sequel or a remake. It's like here's this character in this story, right. sort of like I. So it's it's he is his own wholly original character yeah and i feel that way about the john carradine portrayals too like yeah. i feel like there's three different draculas you know, there's there's one for dracula and dracula's daughter there's one for son of dracula and there's one for house of frankenstein house of dracula 
that that's how I see it. Yeah. Um, I just think like you know what Lugosi brought to that just could not be. I mean, has there ever been anyone to play Dracula that has like really matched that, or at least sort of like brought that level of uh, ownership to the role? I would say Christopher Lee. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I don't think those films are as good as Lugosi's film. I mean, some of the the, the first Hammer Dracula film I think is a very good film. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a lot of the sequels, and Christopher Lee definitely would agree with this. They were just really reaching, and they're and they kind of just feel like covering the same ground yeah and he always felt that the character of dracula was an afterthought in a lot of them like sometimes he wouldn't even have dialogue or he would just like right appear for a few minutes do some stuff and leave which kind of like frankenstein's monster in the last few frankenstein movies (laughs) but yeah like lon cheney jr's uh performance as i'm remembering it like it's definitely very different from the way you would think of dracula but in the context of that film which is basically like a film noir setup, sort of like Double Indemnity or The Postman yeah, Always Rings yeah. Twice. He's the patsy in that film. He's being used. You don't, re- I mean, spoiler alert, I guess, because you don't realize this until towards the end. Right. But the, what, who you think is the sympathetic heroine of the film is actually the femme fatale who has uh, seduced and duped Count Dracula. Right. Into, into giving her and her boyfriend eternal uh, life. Yeah. And, then... and the boyfriend actually, who. He's a very interesting character. Yeah, uh, and because for sure you're not 100 percent on his side for a while. I mean, he accidentally murders his girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, um, and he's like you know cre- you know creepily stalking her, and you know it's yeah. But he has like the way the film ends kind of hinges on his character being like, no, this is wrong. Yeah. I'm not gonna do this with you, and mm-hmm. he's he kind of puts an end to it. Yeah, and I feel like. I, Lugosi's characterization of Dracula, I don't think she, I don't think he'd fall for that shit. No. Yeah. And I think that's why I'm kind of just like, eh, he, that, like that version of Dracula in Son of Dracula is just, I don't know, it just doesn't. Uh, like the, I think the, the I, problem I just wish was I could the have, name. I just wish I could have more of Lugosi's Dracula. Yeah. It's just a shame that we didn't get any more. Yeah. And with all the movies that they made. There's things like uh, for MGM, he did Mark of the Vampire, which is a remake of London After Midnight. So if, like he. London After Midnight, as I've mentioned a few times at this point, is a lost film, but if you really want to find out what it was like, plot-wise at least, you can watch Mark of the Vampire. And Lugosi plays basically Dracula in it, but fleetingly, in a few scenes spread out over the course of the film, and with only one line of dialogue in the very last scene. (laughs) And then Return of the Vampire, he plays, again, basically Dracula, but not really. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's Lugosi in a cape playing a vampire. Yeah. And there, there's these little, like, ah, oh, he's almost Dracula. Yeah, and even in, even when he has the name back in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, and it's like, he's, here he is, he's Dracula, what does he have to do in that movie? Almost nothing. He's a mad scientist, randomly. <laughs> yeah. A very happy one. I like how, I, I, I like those movies where Lugosi... I mean, he's, a, he's got such a dark persona and a serious persona. Mm-hmm. And there's just a handful of movies where he's just like, I'm so happy to be here. Like, I don't, like, <laughs> right. um, there, there's a weird movie from like 36 or something called Postal Inspector. It's like a super low budget film about like this heroic postal inspector who's solving all these mail fraud issues. And 
Lugosi plays like this criminal mastermind guy. But in his first few scenes, he's like hanging out at a nightclub and he's just like having a grand old time. And it's just so great to see. I don't know. <laughs> in, in life, he didn't always get to be that happy. Uh, yeah, understood, unfortunately. But, um, we'll talk more about Bill Lugosi next episode when we talk about the black cat not just one version of the black cat but two we're going to we're going to delve deeper into the uh, the idea of there being these two different uh, distinct eras of universal uh horror films uh with the black cat from 1934 34 and its remake in name only in 1941 1941 both with Bela Lugosi in very different roles that really reflect how the studio thought of him at that time or at those times so yeah I look forward to uh, checking those movies out both both of those I have never seen before though I am very familiar with uh, the 1934 Black Cat primarily because of its uh, sort of famous for being the first on-screen appearance of both Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff together. Um, but I'm excited. I'm excited to watch it and uh, talk more about universal horror. Yeah. So thank you for joining us for another exciting episode of Talkin' Movies. I'm Max. I'm Tim. And we will see you next time. Bella Lugosi is dead, the bats have built the bell tower.